We're going to go to Philippians chapter 4, read three verses, verses 10 through 12. I'm going to read in the New Living Translation. I, I don't have a sermon today. I, I, um, I feel like I just have some, some remarks. Some remarks I'd like to make. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. How I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know you have always been concerned for me, but you didn't have a chance to help me. Paul speaking to the church in Philippi. He says, not that I was ever in need, says the man that has been robbed, says the man that has been starving to death, says the man that has been shipwrecked, says the man that's been abandoned in sea trying to swim for his life, says the man that's been imprisoned, says the man that's been beaten, thrice stoned, left for dead. He says, not that I was ever in need, for I have learned, someone say, I have learned, Paul said, I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. I just want to talk from this idea from my heart here today. I've prayed about what to speak, what to say. And I really just felt like the Lord had me to share some feelings with the congregation about lessons learned along the way. Lessons learned along the way. For those who may be a first-time guest, welcome here today. Sorry for all the awkward moments of people saying remarks about their past relationship and current relationship with my wife and I and Pastor Jared. But it, this month, the church has, has put a concerted effort to show their appreciation for what we've been a part of here in Watertown. We have pastored here for 15 years, and as most of you know, this Tuesday is going to be a transition in this church where there will be a vote on Pastor Jared being the senior pastor and I will preside as bishop, but I will not be putting a lot of focus of my ministry so much here in the local congregation. I feel to base from here and reach into rural towns and communities with some folks in this church. And we are going to see a rural revival across this land But 15 years ago, my wife and I moved here. We were 22 years old, and we were married, I think, a little over a year, somewhere around that, and uh, I should have gave the picture, but I didn't think of it, but the last location that we were at was was a, a, a house church, for lack of better terms. It was a building built by the first pastor in the 70s, and he built it brick by brick. And his goal was to have a property that was under the name of the church. So over the years, somebody that was there could live within the church and grow a church. His health failed him. 
and he had to move on. And since then, that house church would open, close, open, close numerous efforts over the years. And that's when my wife and I came onto the scene after graduating from Bible college. We moved here, did not have a job, did not have any uh, leads uh, really of what to do, how to do it. But we worked multiple jobs for eight years while uh, living in the basement of that church, not all eight of those years, but about the first five or so, maybe four, and um, just trying to dig out a work for the Lord. And I've learned a lot along the way. I have not learned everything. I don't know everything. I don't claim to be a grandmaster sensei that has all power and all knowledge and all wisdom. But I have been able to survey over the years and acquire some experience and learn some lessons from it. In the 15 years we've been here, I feel like there's been three seasons of our time here. I could break it down a little more definitively and extend the names of seasons. But a very general generalization of three seasons we've been through would be the first season was crucifixion. The second season was foundation. And the third season was celebration. The first season was pretty much the first seven years of crucifixion. The old man having to die. My my way, my nature, the things I want done, the things how I like to see them. God was really just needing to crucify this flesh so his will could be done. So his kingdom can come. So God's will could be accomplished and I, I can assure you the first seven years was the most depressing and most difficult of my life. Not that every moment of those seven years was depressing, but it seemed to be the theme of those seven years. A lot of hardships, and as you heard in that video, Brother Doug even mentioned, I, I, I've had a mental breakdown. I've laid on the floor of that that previous building literally in convulsions and spittle coming out of my mouth, not able to really utter words other than telling God, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying. It was after we were told that this church will never grow, that it was our fault that it would never succeed. We were the hindrance. We were the problem. We've heard a lot of things along the way. But when God helped us to make it through that season of crucifixion, there was a resurrection in us and we began to lay a foundation. We were determined that this was going to be a church that was rooted in the truth, rooted in the doctrine. And that next season of seven years was about establishing a firm foundation. And now we are in this, the next segment of season of seven years which will not so much be focusing of seven years here in Watertown, but I believe Watertown has learned to celebrate. I believe Watertown has learned to let the joy of the Lord be their strength and to enjoy harvest for a season. I can't remember off the top of my head which evangelist it was. I believe it was evangelist Brennan Claiborne that God spoke to him to speak to this church, that God was teaching us to learn to go from a season of warring and fighting into rejoicing and receiving. And I believe that has been quite the theme of this year. In this lessons along the way, I have felt we have had our biggest battles. I can name many of them. But it would seem in this time that we've been here, the, the two biggest battles I can really think of, and again, this does not capture everything because I only have so much time to speak to you here today, 
But I have found the power of tradition is very strong. And trying to fight and trudge through that and establish who Jesus is in Watertown has been the battle of our lives. Teaching the revelation of the mighty God in Christ. Oneness, as you will. It has been one of the biggest battles. Another has been establishing praise as a culture of the church. Those probably of all things that we have faced, and there's a lot of other battles, those have been two of the biggest battles to try to establish as a church here in Watertown, South Dakota. I've experienced some personal frustrations to simply being not seeing desired results sooner. I like to see things done by yesterday, already accomplished, already ahead of the road. When you, when you come here, you're 22, and, and you want to take the bull by the horns and just see a, a revival overnight. It was frustrating not to see desired results sooner. And I still can face that. I still battle that because I look at where we are today, and I celebrate it, and I enjoy what God has done, and I rejoice in it. But at the same time, there's that side of me like, man, I'd like to see more sooner. I want to see more results for the kingdom of God. Another personal frustration is not seeing people reach their potential. Because I look at a group of people here today, and I think of all the people that have been through this church, been a part of this assembly, and man, I just see potential. I see inside of people my my prayers god help me to mine out of that person their full potential of what you have for them as we would call the names of people before the lord in prayer i would feel god would prompt me and show me what god can do with this life or that life and trying to get it to germinate and grow and thrive in somebody it is it is quite the work it uh, I, I believe it was stated not just today, but over the course of this month, as people have said remarks about our ministry, we, we tend to be people that challenge people, and that's not always the most comforting conversation to have, is you're trying to press people to go further in the kingdom of God, not to insult where they are with God, but not to settle with where they are in God. And it's been quite the battle, it's been quite the joy, and listen to Brother Doug, you say, you know, sometimes it could be a militant process, that like of a pit bull. And I do take that in the most endearing way because I know who it comes from. But I share with you some lessons learned along the way from our process of 15 years here. These are not all the lessons. These are not the most clear, concise way to express them. But there's some some things that I jotted down that perhaps I believe would be good for you to hear Maybe you can glean from and it could be helpful for you because we all are on a path. We are all on a journey. We all are on this process called life, trying to move forward, trying to grow, trying to enter into the kingdom of God. And so some lessons learned along the way. And I learned the hard way to try not to be what I am not. Try not to be what I am not. What I mean by that, and I shared this with the group last night, I can liken the beginning process of the, the church here 15 years ago of trying to be something we were not. I liken it to almost a marriage when you are newly wed and there is, there's joy to that and it's exciting and this new venture as you are entering into the process of marriage 
But in the early stages of marriage, if you're the typical person, you, you don't have all the money. You don't have all the property. You have pretty much bare bones. It's just a love that fills the tank, and that's about all that you can live off of. But you realize as you look around, you could begin to compare yourself to others and see that, man, their marriage, that must be nice because they have two vehicles. Now, I'd like just to have one vehicle that works. If, you, if you've never been there in marriage, you, you know, uh, you get, you, I, I don't want you to start your marriage over again. But it's just a typical way it goes about in life. And you look and you see they have a house. And that house is, you could fit your entire apartment in the living room of that other married person's house. And you, you can just feel like you have less value in your marriage. You can feel insecure about your marriage. You can see all the blessings and accumulations that another marriage has as they begin to go on a vacation. And you're just, man, it'd be nice to just have a weekend off from work. And you look at someone that gets to have a whole seven days away in another land and enjoy their time together with their spouse. And you can feel the pressure of looking at your marriage and their marriage. And then you get that you succumb to it and you feel that's what you need to do to add value to the marriage. So you get the credit card. You go to uh, the loan shark and you get that big loan. You start swiping that card till it begins to melt. And now you have the vehicles and now you have the house and now you have the, the vacation and now you're living up, you're enjoying it. But the pressure afterwards begins to mount upon you as debt begins to crush you and the strain of all that debt begins to you feel the weight upon your shoulders and now the marriage is tense and now there's the frustrations now there's the arguments all of that and not one time was there the consideration that maybe they have that in their marriage because they've been married 15 years 25 years 40 years And it's taken time to get where they are at in their marriage. And that's how I like in the early stages of the church here is we try to be a 25-year marriage in the first 25 minutes of the service. We tried to be a legacy church in the beginning of digging out a church. And, you know, my wife and I, we started and we were working with Brother Doug, as you saw in the video. And we were doing two services on Sunday at 10 a.m. And a, and a 6 p.m. And then a prayer night and then a Bible study night, then a youth night. And then throw on top of it, let's start a Spanish church. And throw on top of it, let's go into some of these other towns. And let's also go to the jail. I mean, we're trying to do everything simultaneously, trying to be something that was a process of time trying to take the bull by the horns and now feeling the pressure of all of that and trying to acquire feeling that I need to have this sound system and I need to have this uh, this 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 decor in the church and I need to have these kind of seats in the church because that's what this church has and that's what that church has and you're trying to be be something that you're really not meant to be in that moment because A church is a process. A marriage is a process. It's something that is built over time. I have learned to try not to be what I am not. I've also learned along the way that a change of season calls for a change of consecration. 
Uh, Brother Brendan did a fantastic job today as he talked on a number of things, but he did mention about seasons and how seasons can affect, you know, the value of this, that, and the other. But a change of season does call for a change of consecration because you don't want to wear the same clothes in the summer as you wear in the winter. You don't want to wear the same uh, items. You want to adjust for the season that you are in. And, and I did not adjust for the season that I came into. And I did not adjust my prayer life. And I did not adjust my personal devotion and Bible reading. Those things I have found to be essential and critical. That when I am in a change of season... I need to learn to adjust my consecration for that season if I'm going to endure through it, if I'm going to make it through it. And I have seen over the years when all of a sudden when the flow stops and all of a sudden I cannot seem to deal with the pressure that is before me, that God is calling something to be adjusted in my life to change the consecration for the change of season. I have learned along the way that value of a personal relationship with God. This daily prayer and daily Bible reading became more than a chore, a task, some sort of Christian discipline, but really the value behind it of getting a relationship with God for myself. Because as Brendan mentioned this morning, talking about the value system, values changes with season and value changes in society and value changes in all this world that we live in. And when you go through a change of season, if you are in relationship with God, his value for you does not change. I have been through seasons of drought and seasons of depression. And because of a dearth of relationship, I drew my value from how many people were coming to the church, how many people were getting the Holy Ghost, how many people were being baptized. That was what determined my value in God's eyes. But that was only my flesh saying that because it is not the truth. I am a child of God. You are a child of God. And you must learn to talk to God every single day. Day. You must learn to talk to God and read his word every single day because life is up and down. Life is not steady. Life is not easy. Life is tough. But if you learn the lesson of praying daily and having a personal relationship with God that doesn't just come from taking and receiving something from a pulpit on a Sunday, but a prayer closet on Monday and a prayer closet on Tuesday, you will will find that you are worth more than gold to God. If God who can clothe the lilies of a valley, if God who can decor the flowers in a field, God who can take care of every sparrow who doesn't clock in eight to five and make sure there's food in that nest. He says you are worth more than many sparrows. And so in my darkest hours, I have learned to still feel valuable. Because I would be isolated in prayer and I can feel the embrace of my heavenly father saying, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I love you. I have learned the value of laying aside weights. Paul said it like this. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are expedient. Not all things are profitable. Not all things are beneficial for your walk with the Lord. 
You have to learn to lay aside some weights and sins that so easily beset you. In the early years of our ministry here in South Dakota, I never realized the impact of levels of entertainment in my life that were really a distraction from a Christian discipline of the getting closer to God in that relationship the dangers of that entertainment trap that I would succumb to that would rob me of time in prayer, rob me of time in the presence of the Lord. And I would not draw value from his presence. I would draw joy from being entertained, being wrapped up in the things of this world, watching movies and TV and getting caught up with that and what's going on in society and caught up with sports where I would draw just basically in my downtime joy from that time. But I promise you this, any time that you give up and say, you know what, I want to give it to the Lord. I want to know him more. I promise you, you'll learn a valuable lesson of spending more time in the presence of God and more time going after what God is after. And that is reaching your neighbor. That is reaching a lost and dying world. Some things that I have learned along the way that have helped me. I've learned the value of my spouse. If you're here and you're married, you need to learn that your spouse is not an accessory. Your spouse is an ally in ministry. Your spouse is God's will is for you and your spouse to be a powerful force for the kingdom of God. And I know that that may not be the current condition of your marriage because we all have different walks of life. We're all different places. But ultimately, it is the will of God that you pray for your spouse because God is able to convert. God is able to transform. God is able to change. God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or even think. And even if you are single and you are not married, you do not draw your value whether you are or are not married. Because you could put false expectations on that other partner in marriage that they will satisfy only what God can satisfy. And it's important that in every marriage, and I've learned that lesson along the way in my own personal marriage, not to expect my wife to provide only what God can provide. And I cannot provide for her only what God can provide for her. And we have to make sure that we have that healthy aspect in our relationship with God and in our marriage. You've heard me share this before if you've been here over the years. That one of the near audible voices of God that I've heard is when he told me clearly that if it was not for my wife's covering, I would be in hell right now. My wife is highly disciplined. My wife is highly consecrated. And I've been in the lowest seasons of my life of quitting and giving up and walking away from this church and walking away from my marriage. I've been through the valley of the shadow of death. But I thank God that there was a wife that was praying and interceding for my soul. I thank God. If you're here today, you ought to count it all joy. You should be thankful. If your spouse is here in the church, that's not to make anyone feel uncomfortable. If your spouse is not here in the church, you keep praying and believing they're going to be here and they're going to be a part of a powerful, solid relationship with God. But we ought to appreciate our marriage and invest in our marriage. And I thank God after some hard beginning years of our marriage in the process of ministry, I've learned to invest in my marriage and I've learned to receive from my marriage. And we can learn that along 
the way. I've learned the value of the fivefold ministry. Never heard of it, never understood it until I began to speak out. And I remember going to a couple churches where they would have on their wall a statement about the fivefold ministry found in the book of Ephesians, where it would say apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists. And I kind of scratched my head puzzled by that on a wall and inquiring about it. And they begin to expound. And all of a sudden, something began to make sense because the first seven years of, of pastoring here, not one person got the Holy Ghost while I preached. Now, some people got the Holy Ghost of evangelists came or people got the Holy Ghost, you know, in their own personal prayer time, but not in a service that I, I ministered. And that would frustrate me that something was wrong with me. But then as I began to minister out and seeing people get the Holy Ghost and seeing people get baptized and seeing people literally just miraculous healings take place in their body. And I was flabbergasted by that. I'm like, well, how come it works there and not here? And then I began to learn about the fivefold ministry and God helped me to understand the need for the local assembly to hear more than the local voice of a pastor. But to have outside voices that God has anointed come through this assembly and begin to preach and teach and confirm what has been preached and what has been taught. And when we begin to do that, it was a change. There was a significant, a seismic shift that took place in this church. And we begin to see multiple people receiving the Holy Ghost on a frequent, more frequent basis as we would quarterly have somebody come to this church. And we would see healings and we would see deliverance and we would see transformation and people received the revelation of doctrine. It was a beautiful thing that I have been able to learn along the way that if you want to overcome and defeat a stronghold, you can do it with the fivefold. If you have a fivefold ministry, you can come against any stronghold that is against the ministry because we are not meant to be all the, the whole package. We need the body. We need each other. We need arm and hand and foot and eye and ear. God has designed the church body to operate as such, I've learned the value of planning and preparing, which is not a natural gift of mine. And I don't know if I've unpacked that gift yet either, but I have learned the value of it and made attempts at it, usually through my wife, because she is the planner and the preparer. And this is what I just made mention of ago. We begin to intentionally plan when we would have revival service and we would intentionally plan our outreaches leading up to it. And we would intentionally plan on teaching certain doctrines leading up to it. So when that man, that woman of God came to the church, the, the, the stage was set, the table was prepared. So it would be a very easy process for that evangelist to step into a productive and effective environment. I've learned the value of giving financially. You know, it is one of those topics that can make people uncomfortable when you begin to teach on tithes and offerings in the church. And people can think that it's some sort of ploy and scheme to get people's money. But when you read the word of the Lord, it is laced throughout Old and New Testament, the principle of giving financially and not giving minimally, but giving extravagantly and sacrificially, willfully and cheerfully to the Lord. And in that process of time, 
we would begin to, when we had needs, I remember in the early stages, there was some individuals that were not into the idea of giving to missionaries overseas. They were not into the idea of supporting another work outside of the local work. And they, 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 they meant well because their idea was, well, we have a need here and we need to build the church here. And what if we stop giving all this money to missionaries and stop giving this money to an orphanage and stop giving this money to this cause and that cause. And what if we kept it and we were able to provide for you, pastor? And that felt good hearing that because their intention was, we want to see you stop working two jobs. We would like to see you not struggle financially. We would like to see you not have to receive government assistance just to make it to get by. We would would like to see some things change. But I, I remember having those hard conversations saying, I, I thank you for the intent that you have, but we are going to be a giving church. We are going to be a missions-minded church. We are going to be a sacrificial church. And all of a sudden, as we begin to give more, though it seemed that there was even more need locally, we begin to see the windows of heaven open up and God begin to provide and bless this church above and beyond anything that we could have saved money for. We could not have saved money to purchase this property. But God saw a memorial offering that built up over the years combined with prayer. And God says, you have put a time of memorial giving and memorial praying. And God says, you put all that lay away in heaven. And he opened it up and God gave us this building six years ago, absolutely debt free never taking out a loan, never being in debt. I'm telling you, church, you cannot out give God. If you give to God willfully, cheerfully, and sacrificially, you will get the attention and the favor of God. People could get hung up upon that, you know, that, that kingdom tax called the tithe. You know, oh my goodness, 10%, that's just so much. And that's so Old Testament, no way. Well, fine, forget Old Testament. How about New Testament giving? When you read about a church that was given to the kingdom of God, the Bible says they went and sold their land. They went and sold their houses. They went and sold their vehicles. They went and sold everything and laid it at the feet of the church to expand the kingdom of God. That that, that That's the spirit of someone that really has revelation revelation of what this is about saying i don't want to do bare minimum old testament expectation i want to go above and beyond because i don't give to get i give because he gave and i have seen the miraculous hand of a god who provides when we do not hold our purse hostage i learned the value of patience along the way By nature, I am not the most patient person, and I don't claim to have a degree in it either. But in learning to be patient in dealing with people, in observing and being involved in the lives of people over the 15 years, most people's character flaw or dysfunction is generational. They really don't know how to operate any other way than the way they were raised, the environment they were brought up in. And I've learned that I've had to try to figure out what what is the root, what is going on, what what does this stem from? And if we would ever have patience, as it says 
In Luke 21, 19, I believe it is, in your patience possess ye your souls. There, there is a possession of a soul if you can possess patience for that soul. Lessons learned along the way. I've learned the lesson to find value in a lost cause. I've heard it numerous times of people that would make a comment about somebody that <clears throat> that person's a lost cause. They're, you, you, you can't really do much with them. People that have moved here and, and were backslidden. People that were transferred from a church. And you, you hear stories. You hear statements from people along the way. But I am the product of people's patience and God's grace. It's why I, I believe God has given me a burden to work with people and spend time with people over years to try to help because that is what I am. I was a backslider. I was someone that was far gone that legitimately people said there is there's no hope for him. He is done. You stay away from Mark. And they, the people in the church warned to stay away from me because I was that hazardous and that dangerous. But I thank God for some people that saw something that I could not see in myself. And they were patient with me along the way. And they were gracious with me along the way. And there is nobody in this room under the sound of my voice. And there's nobody on this planet under the sound of my voice. That is a lost cause. God is, again, Brendan mentioned again, if you could see the value of who you are written in blood. Jesus paid the ultimate price the greatest price because he did not die for one he died for all God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever not just some people not every odd man out but anybody and everybody God gave for every single person on this planet to be redeemed for the Lord is not willing that any should perish but all to come to repentance I've learned to listen I I wasn't always the best listener because I have a hard time at pretending to care about something I don't care about. And you can usually read it on my face. I'm not very good at trying to even pretend to fake a face. But it is hard for me to listen because it's like, well, if you're not going to do it my way, if you don't see it my way, I don't even care. I just want to move on. I want to accomplish what I want to accomplish, and I want to accomplish what God wants to accomplish but the Bible says, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. A scripture nailed me right between the eyes. But when you listen more, you learn more. And you have a window into somebody's life if you could ever learn to shut up. But we don't, we're not good in America shutting up. We always want the stage. We want the platform. We want the voice. We want to be heard. We want to talk, 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 talk. But sometimes you got to listen to somebody else and hear what they're doing when they speak is they're opening up a window into the room of their heart and trying to help you see something. And if you could ever pray and say, God, give me a hearing ear. Give me a listening ear. God, help me to see what is being opened up in this moment. The Lord will give you wisdom and insight into that life. I've learned to discern fact from feeling. I, uh. I'm a very feeling-oriented person, somewhat. There's certain feelings I'm more engaged in than other feelings. But I remember when I would feel things that I was not acquainted with when I first moved here. 
I was going insane because I've never felt the depression I felt when I moved here. But the Lord has helped me to understand that I am not to give over to any feeling. I'm not to embrace any feeling that comes my way. The Bible says we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith and not by feeling. We, we need to know the facts of God's word above the feelings of our heart. When we learn to begin to read God's word and see what is written, it doesn't matter what we feel. It's what is written. And in the beginning, my wife and I, we would, especially myself, because I was never been to this territory. I've never been to this region. And the spirit spiritual atmosphere was completely different than any atmosphere that I've ever lived in before. And I began to feel the heaviness and the depression and the hopelessness and the despair and the lethargy and, and you know, why even try, why even make an effort? I don't even want to even really get up today. I'd rather just lay here and do nothing all day. I feeling that feeling of the area. And that's how a spirit of an area works. It projects what it is on you so you can feel it on you until you believe it then you embrace it and now it is at the helm and the steering wheel of your mind and in your heart but the bible says that in first john 4 we are to try the spirits and see whether they be of god test it and look hey is that is that spirit that i'm feeling is that emotion that i'm feeling does that line up with what is written forget what I feel what is written and the Bible says in 2 Timothy 1 7 God has not given you the spirit of fear he's given you power love and a sound mind it's the power of knowing the word of God for yourself so when you are flooded with emotion you can respond with what is written that is how Jesus combated temptation an onslaught and flood of fleshly temptations of feeling you better believe Jesus felt hungry. You better believe Jesus felt like, you know, hey, I, I do deserve to be worshipped. I am God manifest in the flesh. But he did not give in to feeling. He combated saying, it is written. It is written. It is written. I would to God that every person in this room today can go home and learn what is written. What is written. What is written. Because we will daily be flooded with emotion. And you combat feeling with the fact of what is forever settled in heaven. I've learned the value of the sense, time, the sense of timing. And that goes in a number of arenas. It was, I, when we uh, you know, wanted a building, it wasn't the time originally to get that building. I've learned to, to be sensitive. God, just because you don't do it now doesn't mean you're not going to do it later. It's not the time in which you want to do it. In the sense of time, I've learned that I've probably pulled the gospel trigger too early too often. Meaning I, I probably flooded some people with too much truth that they were not even ready for. And we have to learn to be sensitive to where somebody's at, what season they're in, their level of openness, their level of receptivity, their level of understanding. Because also you can you can pull you know double barrel and just kind of let them know every single truth that's found in the word of God on day one. And you can overwhelm somebody. And we must learn the sense timing. I've learned the value of considering others, people's opinions, feelings, stories, gifts, limitations. Because you can get so driven in what you're wanting to accomplish that you don't ever help people accomplish 
what their purpose is, what their dream is, what their mission is, what God has for their life. You know, I, I, I've forever embedded in, in my mind, I, I've learned this the hard way, is the, uh, I'm a very driven person. I push, 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 push. Let's do, do, do. Let's get this like now. And uh, the story of Jacob and Esau, these two brothers that were separated, and now Jacob and Esau are reunited, and they're hugging and embracing, and it's this, this moment of powerful reconciliation and forgiveness. The emotion is high. And, and, and so Esau's like, come on, come on, let's, let's, go, let's go get together. Let's have a big party. Let's have a big celebration. Let's go. Come on, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just down this way. And Jacob says, I, I want to, but you're going to have to give me some time. Because if, if I push the journey much more, the little ones that are with me and the flocks that are with me are going to die. They don't have the strength for this pace to get to where you'd like to get to. And it's very important that we learn that we want to see ourselves somewhere. We want to see other people go there with us. But not everybody's at the same place. And not everybody's at the same stage. And you have to learn to discern that and recognize where is this person. I, I want them to be right here right now. But they're not at that stage. And i got to help them to gradually get there. I've learned the value of teaching and explaining. If there's something I... I I, I have learned to enjoy doing more than preaching is teaching. I've learned to explain doctrine to people. I've learned to explain the whys behind the what. And we come from a, a stock of just basically generations of do this, do this, do this, do this, and really not know why we do it, what to what purpose, or even how we do it. It is important to know the why, and it is important to know the how. Not just the what to do, but why do we do it, and how do we do it. Because if we could ever get to the why, you can help someone get to revelation. And if you can get them the how, it's the application of that revelation that they received. And it's one of my favorite things to teach in the beginning of Bible studies with people is prayer. It's the one thing that we've told people to do for so long, for hundreds of years, pray, pray, pray. But it took the disciples three and a half years to muster up the courage and tell, ask Jesus in Luke 18, one, Lord, teach us to pray. Just teach us. I, I, we've heard you talk about it. We've heard you tell us to do it, but would you teach us? Would you show us just like John showed his disciples? I've learned to love the land. When we first came here, I, I absolutely hated, despised with a passion South Dakota. Who in their right mind would ever live in, in a barren, forsaken, frostbitten land? I hated South Dakota. But I've learned to love the land, and it's important that you learn to love where you're planted. Psalm 102, verse 13 and 14 says this, Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion for the time to favor her. Yea, the set time is come. For thy servants take pleasure in her stones and favor the dust thereof. 
God says it's time for the favor of God to be upon this land and upon this region. And God's favor is aimed and poured out upon a region where there is a people who love where they're planted and want to be invested where they're planted. And if you know what I'm talking about, it's that shift, that moment where it's just a place where you live and it's just a place where you go to church and it becomes a passion where you live. And it's a passion where you go to church and all of a sudden you enter into covenant with that land and you're saying, God, I I, I believe for something. Something in this land. When God sees somebody value the field and find the treasure in the field, they find the pearl of great price and they go and they sell all they have just so they can get the treasure that's in the field. I'm telling you, there's treasure in this field and you have to get sold out to what is in the field. And God says, okay, now I can favor you. Now the set time has come where I can give the destiny of that land, the purpose of your life i can unfold it before you because you now take pleasure in that property you favor the dust of that land i've learned about healing the land if you've not heard that sermon i would strongly encourage you to look it up and just type heal the land in your google search bar in my name and the gs church and you'll find the link but i believe it was a god-given revelation for this land found in Deuteronomy 21, 1 through 9. I'm not going to read through those, through those verses. But I've learned that you, you, could, you could want something so bad. But until you find the source. Until you go back and take responsibility for the atrocity of a land. You can never heal that land. God, we are people, agents of time. We have beginning, we have end, and we move on. But God is infinite. God is eternal, immortal, invisible, and he lives outside the realm of time. God doesn't move on. God doesn't forget every covenant that's ever been broken, every atrocity that's ever been committed, everyone that's ever misrepresented the name of Jesus. And wherever you find yourself living, you ought to learn the history of that land and find the significance of the atrocities of that land over time. And don't say, well, it's not my problem. No big deal. I wasn't alive there. I never committed that atrocity. I never owned a slave. I'm not racist. You can say all those things all you want. But God is looking for the living to repent because the dead cannot repent. God looks for somebody to take ownership of the atrocities of the land and begin to intercede for that land. And that's what Deuteronomy 21 is all about. It was the law of when they would find a a murdered body in the middle of a field and nobody seen it. Nobody heard it. No one was there for it. And so they would measure the distance of the body to the, the nearest city and whichever city was closest to that dead body would be required to take responsibility that whatever uh, nearest atrocity to the land, they had to take ownership and they had to repent of it and they had to sacrifice it. Then God would bless that land and remove the curse off of it. It is important that we realize that we are living in a land that has history and we cannot just move on because dead men do not repent. We may have not committed the sin, but somebody needs to stand in the gap and pray about the sins that were committed. The Bible says the ultimate supreme example is Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin 
took on our sin. He became sin. He put, he became what he was not. And that's how he was able to intercede for the loss of the land. We are to be like Jesus. We may not have committed something in the past, but we got to pray about the past. If we're ever going to see a healing in the present and a revival in the future. I've learned the value of the church family. That's why I was a pathetic mess listening to people this month share things. I, I love I love the people in this room. You are my family, and I love you. I am blessed to be a part of the congregation here in Watertown. I've learned the value of asking for help. I'm going to hurry on. I've, I've, I've rambled long enough, and I, I don't want to take too much more time. I've learned the value of asking for help. We need to learn to ask for help. Stop, stop going it alone. Stop being an island. Stop killing, uh, keeping all your feelings to yourself. Stop keeping everything in and just trying to be tough and make it and believe the life. Nobody understands. Nobody cares. That is not true. There are people in this room that know. There are people in this room that care. But as Pastor Jared has coined the phrase, you know, we can't bear what you don't share. And if you want to sit home and just steep over it and be mad and complain and, you know, just just complain, complain, then, I mean, yeah, it's going to be a miserable life. And you're going to die old, miserable, and irritable. But I've learned the value of just telling some, hey, I, I can't do this. I need help. I need help. And if you could ever learn that word, that phrase, that request, will you help me? You'll be amazed at the amount of people that will say, yeah, I'll help. Learn the necessity of handling rejection. It's important that all of us learn to be rejected and how to handle that. Because if you never learn how to handle rejection, it will kill you. Because you're not used to being rejected. And the best way to learn how to get rejected is basically witness to people. It's like it's the greatest way to learn rejection. Witness to people. And watch how many people turn you down. And it hurts and we hate it. But if you don't learn how to handle it and you always things always seem to go your way. The first time you do get rejection, it will overwhelm you. Two simple characters were more in the Bible, Haman and Ahithophel. Haman and Ahithophel always were right. They're always seen as the voice of God, the wisdom of God. And uh, Haman, not so much the wisdom of God, he was just the number two in command, and everybody bowed to him. But when, when one person rejected to bow to him, it became his destruction. With Ahithophel was not taking the advice by Solomon as the advisor, and he, the other man was his uh, Advice was taken also. He went out. He was overwhelmed with rejection and committed suicide. We need to learn how to handle rejection. So much so to the point where the Apostle Paul was dragged out of a city, stoned dead. And he came up out of that rubble of rock, went back to the same city, preached the same sermon, and encouraged them. Can you imagine being ultimately rejected and going back to that and encouraging others? That's that's amazing. I've learned people will hurt you. Close people will hurt you. It's part, it's part of the process. It's part of life. It's not a joyful thing, but people will hurt you. And 
people will say hurtful things. But I've learned that though people may hurt me, I may not have control of all of that, though there's some things and behaviors we can't control to affect the way people interact with us. But ultimately, as David said, there's some people that for my love, they hate me. That's what David said. He goes, I, the more I love, it seems the more they hate. There's sometimes you come up against things like that, but we don't have control of someone's reaction, but we have control of ours. And that's the thing we got to learn to do in the moment where someone hurts us. How will I respond to that hurt? But I've also learned people will help. I've learned tragedy comes in like a flood, but also that joy does come in the morning because it is seasons. I've learned when I was most broken was when my spirit was the most open. It's in that most broken moments that you begin to open up if you respond correctly and you seek God, that God can put inside of you what he could not until he cracked you open. Because it's like, a, like an iron curtain that we put up over time. There's a, a, a fenced in that's impenetrable that we don't let anybody get into. And God sometimes has to apply so much pressure until we begin to crack and break. And when there is a brokenness, now God can get beyond and get something inside of us. But ultimately, I've learned that the Lord is good. His mercy endures forever. The bad outnumbers the good, but the good outweighs the bad. My wife and I, we were talking yesterday, and we've shared this with each other before, and we were sharing it with somebody else that, you know, in society, we tend to live for moments when life is more of a process. Life is process. It's, we, we like to live for these, these euphoric moments. But overall, life and ministry is a process. I read some scriptures in closing. Psalm 105, verse 19. Until the time that his word came, the word of the Lord tried him. In the New Living Translation, it says it like this. Until the time came to fulfill his dreams, the Lord tested Joseph's character. I'm looking at a room full of dreams, things that God's called you to do. But until the time comes, God's testing your character. It's a process. We want the moment, but God puts us through a process. And we will never arrive to the dream and to that moment until we submit ourselves to the process. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 19. I'm going to read through it quickly. Moses, as he's writing to the children of Israel and reading the law and God speaking through him, he says, be careful to obey all the commandments I I'm giving you today, then you will live and multiply and you will enter and occupy the land the Lord swore to give your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness these 40 years, humbling you and testing you to prove your character, to find out whether or not you would obey his commands. God lets us go through wilderness because he's trying to find our character. Yes, he humbled you by letting you go hungry then feeding you with manna, a food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. He did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. For all these 40 years, your clothes didn't wear out. Your feet didn't blister or swell. Think about it. Just as a parent disciplines a child, the Lord your God disciplines you for your own good. So obey the commands of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. 
For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land of flowing streams, pools of water, with fountains and springs that gush out in the valleys and hills. It is a land of wheat and barley, of grapevines, fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey. It is a land where food is plentiful. And nothing is lacking. It is a land where iron is as common as stone. And copper is abundant in the hills. I believe that God has led us into this third segment of a season of sevens. Where we are walking in that land where we are walking into a time where it is plentiful. The blessing of God is abundant. We can now drink of the wells of salvation freely. There is an open heaven over the church and we have walked into a fantastic season from crucifixion to foundation now into celebration. But it says when you have eaten your fill, be sure we must praise the Lord our God for the good land he has given us. But that is the time to be careful is in the bountiful in the time of blessing in the time of plenty is a time we must be most cautious beware that in our plenty we do not forget the lord our god and disobey his commands regulations and decrees that i'm giving you today for when you have become full and prosperous and i'm thankful for the feeling and the prosperity and we have built homes fine homes to live in our flocks our herds have become very large your silver and gold have multiplied along with everything else be careful when there is abundance do not become proud at the time and forget the lord your god who rescued you from slavery in the land of egypt do not forget that he led you through great and terrifying wilderness with its poisonous snakes and scorpions where it was so hot it was so dry but he gave you water from the rock. He fed you with manna in the wilderness of food unknown to your ancestors. He did this to humble you and test you for your own good. He did all this so you would never say to yourself, I have achieved this wealth with my own strength and energy. Remember the Lord your God. He is the one who gives you power to be successful in order to fulfill the covenant he confirmed to your ancestors with an oath. But I assure you of this. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods. Worshipping and bowing to them. You will certainly be destroyed. Church we're blessed. We're in a room where we're blessed. I know this is a weird. I said it's not a sermon. I just have some remarks I wanted to make. And I did not want to try to come across as sermonizing. But. I understand that this is, in some regards, it's my last time I speak to you in this role, in this capacity. And I just want to share some things that I've learned along the way. And I, I thank God for you. I thank God that you helped test my character. I thank God that you've helped my family to learn some lessons. And I'm indebted to this church. And I love this church. And I do not envy, I do not begrudge the transition of season that's walking into a season of celebration. I rejoice with them that rejoice. Because I've learned that not everybody's good at rejoicing with those that rejoice. It's easy to weep for feeling someone that's doing worse than you. 
But when that same person seems to be doing better than you, it feels different. My wife and I have experienced this innumerable amounts of times when the favor of God shifted and the winds changed direction and all of a sudden we were blessed with a building and we were blessed with abundance and we've seen the miraculous. And the same people that would pray and pat for us and say, man, we're there for you. We love you. We care. Not one time celebrating our victories. Not one time rejoicing with us. It's a it's a hard feeling. But I have every ounce of confidence in Pastor Jared and Sister Stacy in the future of this church. And I rejoice in the season of this church. We're not splitting ways. This is not goodbye. It's just a shift of ministry focus. But I celebrate where the church is at today, and I am thankful. And I take us back to our opening reading and conclusion in Philippians chapter 4, verse 10 through 20. How I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know you have always been concerned for me. You didn't have a chance to help in that time, in that moment. Just like not everybody here has been here for 15 years. If you were, you would have helped me in that moment. You would have helped my wife and my kids in that moment. But not that I was ever in need. For I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live almost on nothing and with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation. Whether it's a full stomach. And by the way, this church has never had better cooks than it does right now. All you bakers, God curse you with diabetes. But I've learned to have a full stomach in this season. Plenty and little. Because I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. But even so, you have done well to share with me in my present difficulty. As you know, Philippians were the only ones who gave me financial help when I first brought you the good news and then traveled on from Macedonia. No other church did this. Even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent help more than once. I don't say this because I want a gift from you. Rather, I want you to receive a reward for your kindness. At the moment, I have all I need and more. I am generously supplied with the gifts you sent me. They are a sweet-smelling sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. And this is what I feel to tell you in the Holy Ghost. This same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches. Let's stand together. I know there's different people, different walks of life, and you've been in this church for different seasons, some new, some a few seasons, some longer seasons, some more seasons, some less seasons. But I'm telling you, the same God that has taken care of me and the same God that has provided for me is the same God that's going to supply all of your needs. It's the same God that's going to work the supernatural in your life. For I 
am not better than anyone else in this room. I am not superior to anyone else in this room. God that took care of me is going to supply all your needs from his glorious riches that have been given to us in Christ Jesus. Now all glory to God, our Father forever and ever. And somebody say amen. I want us to lift our hands and I want us to begin to give God the glory and give God the praise for all the things that he has done. We are standing here because of the grace of God, not by works lest any man should boast. I wonder if we can give God the glory for the things that he has done. Lord, we worship you and we praise you. We thank you, God, for the wilderness. And we thank you, God, for the process. And we thank you, God, for the things that we have learned. And I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in this season of abundance and in this season of blessing and in this season, God, of favor. I pray we are not quick to forget where it came from. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above. From the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of your own will you begat us, God, that we should be a kind of first fruits of your creation. And God, we give you the sacrifice of praise, which is the fruit of our lips. Lord, you brought this church through a season of crucifixion. You brought this church through a season of foundation and God I pronounce a blessing upon this church Lord in the season of celebration and a season of harvest Lord those that have sown in tears I pray this is a season of reaping in joy Lord those that have been going through the trial of their life I pray God the winds would change for them and Lord that they would begin to have their mourning turn into dancing I pray God that that spirit of heaviness you would put upon them a garment of praise. I pray the blessing of the Lord upon every marriage in this room. I pray the blessing of the Lord upon every teenager in this room. I pray the blessings of God upon every child in this room. I believe in God that the greatest is yet to come. I believe before you come back for your church you will find in Watertown South Dakota a cup that is running over with thanks. A cup that is running over with praise. A cup that is running over, God, with the blessings of the Lord. In the name of Jesus, I love you, God, and I praise you. I love you, God, and I thank you for the things that you have done. I thank you for the past 15 years, God, and I refuse to take credit. I give you glory. I give you honor. I give you praise. I give you thanks. I thank you for the church. I thank you for the family of God. I thank you for the body of Christ. Every hand, every foot, every eye. I, every ear, I thank you, God. I love you. I worship you. Can you lift your hands and can you lift your voice? Can you just tell Jesus, thank you? Can you tell Jesus, thank you? It is good and acceptable to thank the Lord. God, I thank you. God, I bless you. God, I worship you. God, I magnify you. Hallelujah. 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 Hey, oromoro marare arabo sondore. Merorondo kiara marare re orondoro marare ororondo rakareto ramarando ariaranda seoro. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. I worship you. Mm, I praise you, Lord. 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 I praise you, Lord.
And everybody said amen. Hallelujah. I, I, I thank you for being patient with me and indulging me as I just kind of talk just through some things. I know it's a little different service. I know it's a little different, not really a sermon, but I really do want this church to know that I love you and that you've, you've grown us. We are who we are because of the process of everyone that's in this room. And I'm so thankful. It's been a privilege. It's been an honor. And uh, really is the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. Does anyone believe that? I, we have just begun to taste and see what God is able to do. And I remember talking to my pastor, Jim Sleva, about this change of season. And I was just telling him, like, kind of like, there's a number of things, you know, I, I wrestle with in the process. It's not easy. But one of the things was like, man, I feel like we're finally at a place where we have some pretty seriously awesome momentum. And things that I never imagined to come to fruition as a congregation. And I'm like, man, I, I just, I, I fear that, you know, maybe this transition will you'll be robbed of all that momentum. My pastor said, no. If you disobey the Lord and try to enjoy that season by staying in that, that position, you'll actually quench the momentum. But if you obey the Holy Ghost, you'll see a completely new wave of momentum, growth, and revival. And that is what's going to happen. That's what's going to happen. This is the finest hour to be alive before the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he did not choose the Apostle Paul to be alive today. He did not choose Peter to be here today, James or John. The Lord saw it fit that you would be alive in the last days before Jesus comes back. And that is a humbling thing. And it is also a tremendous responsibility that we've been given. And I want to make much of this moment. Let's lift our hands one last time and let's thank the Lord today. Lord, I thank you, Jesus, for all that you have done. I thank you for speaking to us. I thank you for talking to us. And Lord, I pray that you would go with us in these next two days, God, as we are prayerfully stepping into the, the business of the church and there's going to be transition, God, and we are excited for it. I'm excited to see what you are going to do, God. You're going to completely show how great and how good you are. For this is not by our might. This is not by our power. This is by your spirit. This is not my church. This is the church of the living God that was purchased with his own blood. And I thank you, God, for allowing us to be a part of this blood-bought church. We give you thanks. We give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You're dismissed in Jesus' name.